Good morning. Welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dada, and this is a podcast for people who are interested in the field of public health or new to the field. And today I am joined by Dr. Astrid Rodriguez Acevedo, who is based at the Translational Research Institute in Brisbane. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Emily, for inviting me. So maybe we can start by you telling us what you do here at the Institute. So you're a postdoctoral research fellow? Yes, so I'm a postdoc research fellow at the University of Queensland, Diamantina Institute. And my research is on dermatology, so more specifically the different aspects on teledermatology and the implementation of this technology in Australia. What kinds of technologies? So this is basically photography, so it has to be with 3D photography and how that will help the diagnosis of melanomas. There's a kind of like AI imaging. Yeah, so we look at the quality of images and we evaluate if specialists are able to perform or to give a diagnosis based on the images. Uh, we also evaluate the experience of the uh, patients, so how comfortable they are with the photos, uh, yeah, and with the whole experience of teledermatology as well. And how did you come to be here? So you're not originally from Australia. How did all your training in science start? So I studied biology in Colombia, so that's where I'm from. And then uh, 11 years ago, I came here to a PhD in genetics. So then I arrived in the Gold Coast uh, and I started my PhD at Griffith University. And then my supervisor got transferred to QUT here in Brisbane. And then I've stayed since then. And what made you want to do a PhD in genetics? Uh, I always liked genetics. I think that's one of uh, the passions that I always had. So when I started biology in Colombia, then they gave us like four different options. So that's ecology, uh, plant biology, or zoology, and genetics. So then I chose genetics and yeah, then I stayed there. And why did you decide to move to Australia? Was there a person here that you really wanted to work with or was there a reason? Uh, well, actually, I had an Australian ex-boyfriend over there. <laughs> yeah, so he, yeah, so he was visiting Colombia, and then he stayed there for around two years. So we were together, and then I wanted to do a PhD abroad in an English-speaking country. And then he said, "Well, why don't we go to Australia together?" And then I'm like, yeah, okay. So I started applying and I searched for different groups that worked in genetics. And yeah, it turns out that they accept me and then I came here. I broke up then with him. But <laughs> I, I think I missed that detail in our previous conversations. I didn't ask the right question. And so when did you finish your PhD? How long ago? So that was in 2015. It's been six years now. And so talk me through then till now coming over to the Translational Research Institute. So, yeah, so I was working at QIMR uh, in health economics. So basically after doing genetics, then I switched more towards the biostatistics and the data analysis uh, part. So then at QIMR, I was doing health economics, uh, some genetics as well, but mostly in data analysis. And then, uh, so then what happened is that uh, I decided to stop working full time because I wanted to fund a non-for-profit organization for women. Uh, so then that's how I started looking for a part-time job that will give me enough time to dedicate to my non-for-profit. So that's how I came here. Excellent. That's a very good bridge into your non-for-profit. So you are the founder of Project uh, Whitaker. 
So could you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's how we met. Yes. So, yeah, so Witaka is a non-for-profit organization. So basically what I did is that I gathered a number of volunteers uh, to help uh, female scientists from Latin America with the edition and the scientific assessment of their papers. So basically the issue here is that over there we speak Spanish, so then language becomes a barrier, especially when we're talking about science, because most science is written in English. So for them it's pretty hard to publish in English and to get into international journals. So I thought that it will be pretty good to have like that kind of help for them. And in that way, then we can also include, you know, like create a more inclusive and diverse uh, scientific world. And was that an issue for you when when you were still in Colombia, or have you always had really good English and it was easy for you, right? Or did you identify this because it was something you struggled with? Yeah, well, it's, it's not easy to write and to speak a different language. Like it's been a long, long way. Like. I mean, or I can literally only speak one language. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> it requires a lot of discipline, you know, and actually it requires, uh, I mean, that is easier when you actually need the the language, right? Like when you know that you have to speak, then you're forced to learn, but it requires discipline and a lot of time. So at the beginning, when I was back in Colombia, like I studied English there, then I lived in the U.S. for a while, but it's still writing is a skill that you have to you know like it takes time to master uh so yes i did a struggle with that and then when i was here uh, it is also a process you know like the writing process but then actually what i thought is that so when i was doing my research here then i noticed that there wasn't much uh, literature on hispanic populations so i was doing research on epilepsy on migraines and then I noticed that a few, very few reports on those populations were available in the English written literature. So that was another motivation, actually. So it's like to just uh, give it more visibility to the science that is happening there and to the mm, health issues that our populations are uh, going through. I have a lot of questions. Uh, my first is more systematically. So it seems to me a little bit or a lot unfair that there seems to be this English bias. So why does that happen? Are there Spanish language journals and are they just not as widely known about? Or can you talk me through that kind of sort of more structural barriers and why it is like that? Well, yeah, so we have scientific journals that are written in Spanish. uh, But however, because over here, few people speak other languages. So basically when you do a literature review, and actually you see that in meta-analysis and that one of the criterias that many authors listed is that um, that they excluded studies in other languages. So then, yes, they are not very well known, these uh, journals that are written in Spanish. So obviously for scientists over there, it's better to publish in an international English reading journal. So then that gives like different advantages. So the first one is that of course that uh, builds into their CV, uh, so then they can get more funding. And then the second is that uh, that makes them part of the scientific community that we are like already part of. And so talk me through the process of what what you actually do. So um, you have women over in Colombia and they give you journal articles or how does it actually work? 
Yeah, so well, uh, so I have to say that it's mostly, at the moment, it's mostly females from Colombia, just because I'm from there, and then like most of my connections are there, but it's like the idea is that uh, women from every country in Latin America can access these kind of services. So what we do is that they contact us once they have the final draft of the paper already written in English, right? So then uh, what happens over here is that I receive and I meet with them to talk about like the objectives, uh, what is it that they're expecting uh, from the paper, the main message. And then uh, I contact two volunteers. So then they do edition of the English, you know, like we organize paragraphs, we fix sentences. Uh, so it's a very, very detailed uh, edition process. And on top of that, we also do the scientific assessment, just as if you were submitting your paper to a journal. So then in that way, we have like a bigger picture of what is exactly happening with every paper. And then with the meetings that help us to, that help me to understand like what is exactly the corrections that we need to address. So then to start like fixing, like yeah, like molding. So with, with the meetings and what, what I do is that I gather more information on what exactly is that they want, like the message that they want to convey uh, with the paper. So then it's easier to um, perform the corrections. So we do actually two rounds, sorry. We do two rounds of revisions. So then they have the chance to address the issues. And then they also, so we have a second meeting then after that, where they tell me, look, Astrid, we don't think this is good, or we don't want to address this uh, comment, or yes, this is what we want to say in here. But the, the volunteers, like some information that the volunteers didn't understand. So then in the second meeting, it's more like, uh, like trying to understand their uh, work with the comments from the volunteers. So then, yeah, and to be honest, Emily, like we can go as as far as, you know, like three or four meetings or four reviews, rounds of reviews, uh, just, yeah, it's, it's totally up to them. And do you feel like these meetings have an aspect of capacity building so p people are learning as they're going through the process with you? Yes, exactly. And actually that's one of the reasons why I started doing more meetings with them. So at the beginning I was just setting up one meeting, like at, at the very beginning. But now I think that it's very useful that every time they got new comments to meet with them, sit down, talk uh, through the comments. So then they also learn. Yeah, and that's, that's a big thing. So it's not only like fixing things, but it's that like empowering them to do further work and future papers. Excellent. And we talked last time, sorry, not on the podcast, just when you guys weren't here, um, about scaling up and maybe doing some workshops. Have you still got that sort of all on the on the go, possibly? Yes, yes. So I'm, I'm actually very active on that now. So we're offering free talks. Uh, there are very simple talks like on um, some writing rules, then the edition process, so also they understand like how is this the editorial process works, like once they submit the paper. Uh, so we're targeting universities and PhD students. Uh, so those ones are for free. And now what I'm doing is that I'm designing a more structured and longer workshop of maybe 20 hours where we can work on each paper and give like further instructions, you know, and like build a more like a stronger educational output. 
and yeah so so then what i'm doing here is that i'm trying to look for sponsors to cover the costs of the workshop because then of course the second barrier that we have over there is the cost of living right like it's very expensive for them to to pay you know like for a riding course uh let's say here in the in australia or in the u.s so what i'm trying to do is to uh, contact editorials so then they can they can sponsor uh, the workshop for students over there so then it's completely free for them. That sounds like an excellent plan. So what are some of the challenges of setting up or, you know, how have you found the process of setting up sort of your own non-for-profit? And is it scary contacting people about sponsorship? Yes. <laughs> well, it's, it's been very challenging because, I mean, I guess like in research, like we're not taught all these skills that you actually need to build your own business or your own like like something of of your own, right? So I think it's been very slow. But what I what I try to think is that well, there's no rush, you know. And then uh, so I have two days just to work for the organization. And yeah, I think it's trying to build that confidence and trying to show that we're actually doing something that is um, worth doing and that is needed as well. That's very hard and very tricky but I think I think I'm getting better at that (laughs) hopefully (laughs) and just overall do you have any sort of advice or lessons you've learned so far that you would give to other people starting out in public health well you know I think that um, something that everybody and that I guess all the students wanted to get into public health or PhDs or research in general is to have in mind that actually our research should have an impact on our communities, you know, and to actually help people. And yes, our CV and and all those things are important. But I think that our first, our top priorities should be the impact that we have in, in our communities. Yeah, that's very insightful. And uh, someone else I spoke to on this podcast said the same thing. So I think when I start hearing a theme, it's obviously very important. And are there any big messages or things that I haven't asked about that you want to talk about? Well, yeah, I guess it's like the the things that other people can do to help our mission. So, I mean, of course, it's a nation, but no, you don't have to give money all the time. It's like, you know, for example, um, don't bias you, the reviews of, so just be a kinder reviewer. So when you get a paper and you know that authors are from like low or middle income countries, try to understand, you know, try to judge the work only by the scientific value rather than the language. Of course, if the language needs to be fixed, uh, that can be said. Then the other thing is that you shouldn't suggest them to have the paper written, uh, have the paper yeah, read by a native speaker. speaker. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, like, like we're in Latin America and there are no native speakers there, right? So maybe suggest uh, like some editorial process, you know. So there are some other ways, but not a native speaker uh, review. Because then what that also uh, like encourages is to people to include people with English last names or names in their papers, but without any scientific merit. 
and that that shouldn't be the case right like if you're listed as an author in a paper is because you actually contribute uh, intellectually to it. Yeah, so I think there are different things that we can do, like the same with PhDs and students that are from abroad, uh, like yeah, try to teach them actually these skills, you know, like with the writing, with the speaking. And yeah, I guess it's like trying to be like more um, kind and compassionate. And what about systematic reviews? Should we be trying to include more studies that aren't written in English? I myself am very guilty of this. Yes, and actually, you know, like there is a researcher in UQ that he's he's working towards these specific issues. And yeah, I think that look, if you can collaborate with someone uh, from that from those countries, or if you can collaborate with someone who speaks Spanish or any other language. Uh, so you can include and you can cover all the literature in your field, then that's pretty good, you know, and that's something that we can all do. Because then in that way, then we don't have this very biased uh, research, you know, that only considers papers that are written in English. So, yeah, just keep in mind that there are papers in your field that are written in Spanish and that there are a thousand and millions of scientists that are working in your field in other parts of the world. And in terms of Project Whitaker, if people want to, are they able to help if they wanted to volunteer? Do you take on volunteers? What's the process there? Yes, definitely. So we're always in the lookout for more volunteers because, as I said, we do the edition of the English, but we also do a scientific assessment. So I always try to allocate volunteers uh, according to their expertise. So then the comments can be more constructive and they can build like uh, more into the papers. So yes, if you want to volunteer, you're very welcome. You can uh, go to the website uh, and then send me an email. And yes, you just have to send me a photo and a short bio and then you will be in the website as well. I'll tag you on Twitter as well if people want to contact you that way. And I don't think I prepped you for this. I keep forgetting to prep people for this question, but I usually finish by asking if you have a favourite book or a favourite movie or something that's, like, changed the way you've thought about the world. Ooh, that's a very tricky question. I, I really love reading. Well, I think that uh, a very good book that I read recently is Women and Leadership. And that one is uh, written by Julia Gillard and in company with another author who, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name. So, yeah, I think it's very, uh, even though it's more like in the political arena, of course, because that's her experience, it's, it's very interesting, like all the content, you know, and all the, like, they mention many situations in which I think most of us have been. So they talk about uh, how we are judged by the way we look, you know, we're judged by our accents, by, by the color of our, of our skin. So, yeah, I think, and, and one of the big messages there is that mentoring is very important and that actually that's something that we should be, like, doing more. And actually that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to do with, with TAGA as well, like try to be like more of a leader and a mentor to women in Latin America. I think you're doing an excellent job. And I can't believe I haven't read that book because I love Julia, so it's going straight onto my list. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad that now we are Queensland friends. Thank you so much, Emily. Yeah, this was a great opportunity. <laughs> and thank you everyone for listening.